Well, happy Advent. As Stephanie said, Advent is really the first major season of the church calendar. So we, we just finished up ordinary time. If you didn't grow up in a church liturgical space, we just finished up ordinary time, which is really long. It's like five or six months long where everything's ordinary and you felt that, right? And now it's not ordinary anymore. It's non-ordinary time starting with Advent. And Advent is really about looking back and looking forward when you, when you simplify it. It's about looking back to when Jesus came, when God came to us in the person of Jesus, and looking forward to the time when Jesus will return. So there's anticipation, there's expectation, there's celebration. It's really about us reflecting on these two times. What was it like when Jesus first came, and what will it be like when Jesus returns? And so every Sunday has kind of a different focus on that basic theme. Today we're going to talk about hope, next week we're going to talk about Love, the following Sunday, we'll focus on the joy that comes from Jesus coming and Jesus returning. And the Sunday before Christmas, we'll talk about the peace that comes between the time when Jesus came and when Jesus will return. So I'm starting today by talking about the hope we have in thinking about Jesus coming as a baby and Jesus eventually returning. So here's a scripture that I hope that you'll remember when you leave worship time today. Let me put it up on the screen. I want you to read it with me, if you will, because you're infinitely more likely to remember it if you read it with me than if I read it to you. So I'm going to count to three, because sometimes as Mill City, we have a hard time knowing when we're supposed to start reading. Anybody else notice that? Okay, I'm going to count to three, and then you'll say the word let with me. Okay? Everybody clear? All right. One, two, three. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Isn't that a great verse? Let us hang on to the hope that we have because the person who promised it to us is faithful. So my idea this morning to frame our conversation is simply that our hope is based on God's promise, not on our circumstances. Our hope is based on God's promise to us and the fact that God is always faithful to God's promises, not on our circumstances. Have you ever made a promise to a small child? Raise your hand. You have? M many of you had? Now, this is the shame-filled question. I'll raise my hand first. Have you ever broken a promise to a small child? Yes. Have you ever felt worse about yourself than when you broke a promise to a small child? When you give a promise to a small child, this is what I've noticed, because I have some small children who live in my house. I don't know whose kids they are, but they live there. When you make a promise to those children, there's no space for them between what you said and what they expect to happen. There's absolutely no mental space that can even imagine the idea that whatever you said won't happen. As soon as you say it, it's a reality for a four-year-old, for a three-year-old, for a five-year-old. So in my house, let me, let me test this. How many of you have been watching Paw Patrol on Nick Jr. lately? I know you guys are binging on Paw Patrol. That, yeah, all right. It's an amazing story about dogs who rescue people or other dogs or something. I don't know. I'm not clear. You watch it. If you say to one of my kids, later today, you may watch Paw Patrol. I promise. It is a certainty. And if you somehow don't follow through on your promise, there will be a revolution in your house. There will be a revolt. They will throw all kinds of things at you. There will be all kinds of craziness. When you make a promise to a child, it's a reality. 
Now, when you get older, you get a little more savvy, a little more mature, you realize somewhere along the line, not all promises are fulfilled, yes? Um, and for some of us, maybe we've seen enough promises not fulfilled that we're even more skeptical when we hear someone promise something than we are hopeful. So think about where you are in that category. If someone makes a promise to you, are you is your default response to be skeptical of the promise or more hopeful of the promise? Have you, and maybe some of us have even gone to the end of the spectrum where we basically don't believe anyone's going to fulfill their promises, especially if they're a politician. What a sad story it is if we can't believe the promises that we make to each other, that we make to children, and eventually that starts to affect the way we see any promise that we think God may have made to us, right? You can't lose confidence in the way people make promises to you without also questioning the promises you think God has made to you. So I just want to ask you this morning to do kind of a self-check, a self-evaluation. How confident are you in God's ability or God's willingness to fulfill the promises that you think God has made to you or to us? Where would you put yourself on the spectrum from, I'm completely hopeful God will fulfill the promises to, I'm pretty skeptical at this point in my life for these reasons. How do we learn to trust God's promise if the scripture is saying to us, let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess because we know how faithful God is, not because we know how our circumstances are going to work out. So we're going to read this story in Luke of a guy named Simeon. And I want to just remind you, I know many of you have looked or read parts of Luke many times. I just want to remind you of the context. Luke was written about 30 years after Jesus died and left the earth. And in that three decades, there was all kinds of hardship for the people who were the earliest Christians. And for sure, one of the things Luke is trying to accomplish when he's writing this book to these Christians 30 years after Jesus had been around was to help them with the fact that they were losing confidence in what they thought they had learned about Jesus, specifically about when of the when of Jesus' return. They expected Jesus to come back right away, and he didn't come back right away, so naturally they became more skeptical or unsure of the faith that they thought they had in the person of Jesus. And so as Luke is writing, one of his purposes is to write to a group of people who are waiting and who are increasingly unsure of their faith. They're unsure because they think maybe we were wrong to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Maybe even those people who saw Jesus resurrected didn't really see that or somehow it was made up in their mind. Maybe they didn't understand him right when he talked about his return. Maybe they just didn't understand anything that he said. They start to doubt. They get more and more uncertainty. They become more and more unsure. And then they couple that with a Roman Empire that starts to persecute them for being Christians. And, and the Jewish religion also kicking them out of the temples that they were used to worshiping in their whole lives. So Luke is writing to a group of people who is increasingly unsure of their faith because of their circumstances, which no one would blame them for. They're wondering, is our faith in vain or is this really what God had in mind for us? And as I reflect on just who those people were that Luke was writing to, it doesn't seem that dissimilar to a lot of what the church in the United States, the church in Minnesota, is going through right now. I meet people who have been Christians a really long time, and they say to me, I'm feeling increasingly unsure of my faith. 
I feel like I have more questions than I did 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Or I feel like the Christianity that was handed down to me as a young person doesn't really fit with the culture that I live in right now. Or I'm unsure how the changes in cultural, cultural influences and politics and all of that is influencing what I really believe and forcing me to think differently about what I believe. And I feel shaky about that. Or when I was a kid, I never really thought about how everybody's perspective had to have an influence or um, and was an important voice in understanding whether something was true or not, like a, most of a postmodern worldview assumes. And so now I have to wrestle with the fact that lots of other people I know think totally different th differently than me about God. And I feel increasingly unsure about my faith. Maybe some of you would put yourself in that place, and then I want to just say to you, then you should feel at home reading Luke. Because the people who were reading Luke, who, were, who Luke was written to, were in a very similar spot. The cultures that they lived in did not support their faith. The culture that they lived in, in fact, went against many of the things that they thought were true about Jesus, and they were wondering, and they were struggling. So let's read the story about this gentleman named Simeon, who was in the latter part of his life, the very last part of his life, and who was waiting for God's promise to be made true to him. Here's how it reads in Luke chapter 2, verses 25. This is after Jesus has been born. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was a righteous and devout person. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation means that Israel would be put back together, would be returned to its rightful space from his perspective. And the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, was on him, was present in his life, was familiar to him. It had already been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Savior, the Christ. Moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts in Jerusalem. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to call, cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So this guy, Simeon, represents in this story a person who's holding on to hope, who's holding on to a promise that God had made to him at some point in his life. We're not sure when. We know that he's, he's old. He's at the end of his life. And he's holding on to this promise that God said, before you die, you get to see the Savior of the world. Before you die, you get to see the Savior of the world. Now, you have to remember that Simeon, 
in the midst of hoping for this, we don't know how long he was hoping for it. We don't know how long it was between when God told him that and when he ultimately meets Jesus. But the circumstances of life in Jerusalem are a mess. The Jewish people are not in control of their own lives. They're under oppression by the Roman government. They're having all sorts of questions about what to do with all these Christians. Simeon is a person who's faithful to the new Christian perspective, the following, the following of the way of Jesus, and is waiting to uh, anticipate that Savior that's been talked about in Isaiah and other places in the prophets. So Simeon is hoping for God to act in the midst of messy circumstances. Now, if we read this passage slowly and carefully and look to ask the question, where do we see God acting? Where do we see the faithful God acting in this passage? You find a, a bunch of different examples of where God is present to Simeon. In the midst of his waiting, it says things like the Holy Spirit was present with Simeon. Sometimes we think only of the Holy Spirit coming and being present with people after Jesus was born and died and resurrected. But we have a very clear example here in Scripture of where the Holy Spirit is with Simeon before Jesus had been born. It had been revealed to him somehow. God had told him through the presence of the Spirit that you have this promise that you get to see the Messiah before you die. And then in verse 27, it says that he was moved by the Spirit. Somehow, God's Spirit got his attention and said, today's the day you need to go to the temple. Maybe some of you have had that sense at some point where God's reached out to you and said, today's the day where you have to do this. You don't even know why, necessarily. He got one of those senses, and he goes to the temple. Jesus' parents are bringing Jesus to the temple on the eighth day because that's the tradition. To be circumcised on the eighth day is the tradition. So the Spirit of God is working in two very obvious ways here. One, he's directing Simeon to come to the temple on a particular time and a particular day. And God's also working through the, the religious tradition of the Jewish people to say, this baby will be present. And his parents will be faithful to bring him to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so as these two events come together, God makes this way, this opportunity for this man, Simeon, to see the Savior of the world before he dies. We see the Holy Spirit giving him hope and by extension giving the rest of us hope that God fulfills his promises. God is declaring this much broader hope for the world. When Simeon says in uh, his little, they call it the Song of Simeon, when he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel, he's making a revolutionary radical statement. You have a devout and righteous Jewish man waiting for the Messiah, standing in the temple of Jerusalem, basically the center of the Jewish world where they believe God lives, holding a baby and declaring to people, this baby is a light to the Gentiles and will bring glory to the people Israel, to God's people. He's standing there with a baby. He doesn't say, this baby is here to save Israel and make it a political powerhouse. He says, first, this baby is a light to the Gentiles, which is one way to say, to the whole world, to the group of people outside the Jewish faith. So Simeon, a man who's hoped for who knows how long, and has now been clued in by the Spirit, this is the one, this is the baby. He doesn't look any different than any other baby. Who knows how many babies come in the temple? 
somehow God tells Simeon, this is this ordinary looking baby with these teenage parents is the one you need to pay attention to. And he's holding this baby, and he says, this baby will cause many to rise and many to fall, but will be a light unto the Gentiles. He's the Savior not only of the Jewish people, but of the whole world. In this story, we see that Simeon's hope isn't even so much that his circumstances would change. He's in the midst of a whole bunch of messy circumstances, but God is the good news to him. The presence of God, the God with us, Emmanuel Jesus, is the good news. He holds the baby that's going to save the world. God becomes the good news for Simeon, and he declares that to the rest of the world. So here's one, one observation I think is really important. We're thinking about hope and promise. Hope requires a long view, right? Hope requires a long view. Hope requires at least the idea that some suffering comes when you're waiting for the thing that God has promised to you. And that's really the difference between being four and hearing a promise and being 34, 54, 74, 94 and hearing a promise. It's that we become more mature and we understand that sometimes there's suffering between now and the time that the thing that God has promised has, will be fulfilled. And as I think about many of your stories, some of you I know are in the midst of that suffering where you're unsure about whether you can still hope for the thing that you think God has promised you. Others of you have been through that suffering and can look back on it now where it's much easier to say, that was super hard. That was amazingly tough and I felt like giving up every other day. And now that I look back on it, I can see God's faithfulness to me in the end. And part of Advent is us just rehearsing that story over and over again because for those of you who are suffering and waiting and trying to hope, you desperately need to hear this story and the stories of the other people in this room who can tell you, keep going. Have a long view. Hold on to the hope that the one who promised that to you is still faithful to you. Why? Because we have all sorts of examples of how God has been faithful for hundreds and thousands of years, but sometimes it sure doesn't feel like that in the moment that you're living in, right? Simeon's an old man. He waited a long time, and when he got to that moment, he looked back on it and said, it was all worth it because now I'm holding the baby who's the savior of the whole world, and I get to announce that in the temple. God, you may dismiss me now. Put up that verse for me that we started, will you please? Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for the God who promised is faithful. Hope is based primarily on God's character, right? Not our circumstances. And that doesn't take away from the suffering of any person in this room because that's very valid. We all go through that and it's really hard. But the community of faith has a long view, not a short view. Not one war, not one vote, not one social program, not one change that we go through can change the faithfulness of God. And when you look at the long history of the Christian tradition, you see God's faithfulness over and over and over again. But sometimes it takes a hundred years. And how do you wait faithfully 
for a hundred years for something that you might not even see in your lifetime. Our hope is based on God's promise, not on our circumstances. I think you learn to hope and trust in a mature way by one, reviewing the way in which God has fulfilled promises to us, biblically speaking. We go over the story of scripture and we say, the God who promised to a barren couple to make them a nation fulfilled this promise. The God who promised to take a teenage kid who was bringing lunch boxes to his brothers into a king fulfilled his promise. The God who promised to bring back a nation from being oppressed in exile to a land that he promised to them fulfilled his promise. A God who promised to bring a savior out of a poor family with no status and no money and no resources to be the savior of the whole world fulfilled his promise. Yes, anybody? The God who promised to create a church and give the Holy Spirit to the church to be God's people in the world, participating in God's mission so other people could hear the good news of Jesus Christ and see the kingdom of God fulfilled his promise. We take a long view. And we see over and over and over again the faithfulness of God to the people who trust God. We see God's faithfulness in the midst of the messy circumstances of the lives that we all live in right now. So think about your context with me. In your workplace, where has God been faithful? Or where are you waiting and hoping for God's faithfulness? A couple of weeks ago, as we were talking about the good news and the workplace, we started to see these pink spoon moments that Stephanie talked about where people are experiencing even small glimpses of God's kingdom in the midst of their work as we see God's faithfulness in bringing the kind of life that God wants for us in our workplaces. I was thinking about our church. We're now in the eighth year of worshiping in this school. This is our eighth school year. And thinking about the faithfulness of God of a, a handful of people, 30 people, who basically couldn't even find a place to worship in northeast Minneapolis. And now we've been here eight years, and we've been praying for this school. And we've been praying for each other. And we've been growing as a family. We've been growing as a community. And now we see that Mill City Church was called by God to be a catalyst for all sorts of things. In the church family and in the neighborhood. To help start youth ministries and food programs. To help talk about the gospel in plain language and public spaces. We've lived into our identity to be a change agent and a, a person or a group of people who call others into common work together. God has been faithful in our neighborhoods and in our schools, but not without immense struggle, right? You see glimpses of the revitalization of Northeast Minneapolis and other parts of Minneapolis and places where you all live. You also see terrible struggles. Last week we're praying for Sheridan because there's a news story that talked about 10 teachers who didn't feel safe to even come to school here. And recognizing that there's been immense progress in the last five years, and that wasn't covered very well in the news, but this trouble was. And so we've seen God's faithfulness to the school, and we also know that life is messy, and there's tons of struggle, and we have to have a long view, and we have to keep trusting that the God of the universe wants the best for this school and for the kids who are here. How many of you come off of Thanksgiving experiences now, realizing and recognizing that there's been faithfulness in your family despite it being a messy life? Anybody? Anybody hear a, a weird uncle story over the last few days? Yes, I know you did. 
There's messiness in every family in this room. And there's also these amazing glimpses of God's faithful to, to us, right? We take a long view and we hope for God's promise because we know that the God that we trust in is faithful. Let me invite the band to come up. I'm thinking about the city of Minneapolis and the fact that there's been lots of turmoil over the last couple of weeks related to a shooting of a gentleman named Jamar Clark and protests and people shooting at protesters and all kinds of nasty stuff. And thinking about how we have to both be active in the moment in trusting the God of the universe for redemption and reconciliation and forgiveness. And we also have to have a long view and recognize that some people have suffered a long time. And they're speaking out and asking for justice. And others who are confused by that and uncertain of what that means. What does it look like for us to be people of hope, not people of violence? Or people who look and see only the downside of the situations that we are in? What if the church could call our city to reflect on the promises that God has made to us and invite us to trust in deeper ways the God of the universe, recognizing that our hope is based on God's promise and God's character, not on our circumstances? Our ultimate hope, when we look forward in Advent, is to Jesus' return. And we have no idea when that's going to happen. Yes? Sorry to disappoint some of you who thought I might make a prediction. We have no idea when that was going to happen. In fact, Jesus himself said, uh, the time is not known to anyone but the Father. We have no idea when Jesus will return, but we ought to be hoping for it, right? We ought to be expecting it. We ought to be looking to the God who has promised to come back in the same way that he left and restore the kingdom of God where there will be no more violence, no more racism, no more poverty, no more sickness, death. But the kingdom of God will be present with us. That's our hope, right? And it comes in the person of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So as we look back at his birth and we look forward to his return, we have confidence despite our struggles because the one who promised it to us is faithful. Let's pray.